the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I can hear the lightning and I can hear the thunder. I haven't actually been out in the rain yet, but since you are, please, please, please be careful as you're driving, especially those of you who are listening to the program and are interested in calling. Use the free KSLR mobile app. You can call hands-free and ask any questions. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at 4 o'clock, we're here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart or mind, we'll do the best that we can to help you figure them out. If you are going to call for a question, you can call 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. 6305757 you can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app to send questions in that way as well 3409585 because it's Wednesday you know that that's followed by Thursday and I want to remind you that Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date day edition of the program so ladies especially if you need any encouragement had a man walk up to Paul at the gym today and he asked her because he's heard our testimony and and, and listened to it on, on online he said so how did you handle it how did you do it for all those 13 years when Ron was such a jerk and you know there's a lot of people going through that this happened to be a man who was going through it with his wife who evidently was being a jerkette but the idea is that God sustains us. If we put ourselves in the place God wants us to be, and if we're willing to be used to win the person, even the person who's affecting us, then His grace will be sufficient. You know, in tonight's Bible study here at Calvary Chapel, we've got a, our Old Testament Wednesday night Bible studies. And in Second Samuel chapter 10, Last time, and I encouraged as many of you as were interested to read, to uh, listen to the message I did last Wednesday night, where David showed kindness, more than kindness, he showed grace and mercy to Mephibosheth, a grandson of Saul, his enemy, but a son of his best friend, Jonathan. And he showed him kindness, and Mephibosheth received the kindness and was blessed the rest of his life because of it. On the other hand, tonight's study... David is again going to show kindness, this time to uh, an Ammonite king. Um, his father has just died. David is wanting to express kindness, and he rejects it. Sometimes people receive our kindness. Sometimes people reject our kindness. But whatever our responsibility as Christians is to always be willing to extend kindness. Even if somebody's going to take us for granted or take advantage of us, our job is to demonstrate kindness, the same kind of kindness that God demonstrated for us in giving His Son, His only Son, for our sins. So tonight, I think it's a good study. Unfortunately, 
next Wednesday night is a real, real tragic study, David and Bathsheba. Let's go to questions that people have been sending in. Here is a question from Patricia. It's actually a prayer request. Uh, just came to the studio. My daughter-in-law is in the hospital. Is at the, at the point of being discontinued from life support. I believe that God is able to do a miracle. Would you please pray for uh, Christina? And I'll leave the last name off just because um, God knows who she is. Uh, Patricia, I will pray. Father, uh, we do ask you to do a miracle. I pray, Lord, that we would have your heart and your mind. And we pray for Christina that you would rescue her from the physical dilemma. I pray, Lord, because I don't know her. I pray that she knows you. And then I pray that your will be done. I also pray for Patricia and other family members. Uh, these are hard times. I've seen a lot of difficult times lately, Lord. So would you surround them with the comfort that only you can provide. Bless them, I pray, Lord, for your glory. Amen. Patricia, let me say this to you uh, as uh, a loved one. Uh, God can do miracles, but I think sometimes we Christians miss the boat when that's what we pray for. The Bible says with thanksgiving we can make our request known to God, and certainly from the grateful heart we can ask God to do this. I'm praying currently for uh, about uh, four separate people in our church who are going through unbelievably difficult things. And um, God knows I'm going to love him just as much if he doesn't answer the prayers. God knows that the people I'm praying for love him, whether he answers their prayers or not. So we truly can, with a grateful heart, make our request known to God. But we always have to be careful of crossing a line, expecting God to do something for us. Miracles, by definition, don't happen very often, if rarely would be, be a better description. So, Lord, thy will be done with Christina and all the other things in our lives. And I pray that Patricia, Lord, won't feel like you've forgotten her if the prayer is not answered. Patricia, I'll keep praying. Keep us posted. Thank you. Here is a question from our mailbox. This one comes from Carlos from our mobile app, rather. Um, he says, does God ever regret things or feel like he made a mistake? If no, then please explain Genesis 6-6. It sounds like he made a mistake, regretted ever creating man. Um, Carlos, we, we, we have to use words. Uh, the King James, unfortunately, uses the word repented. Uh, it doesn't mean God needs to repent or that he, he, he made something and didn't know the outcome. So God never makes mistakes. By definition, he can't make mistakes. But there's a lot of things that God regrets, not him. Now, let me read Genesis 6.6 6, just to make sure that uh, everybody knows what it is. Uh, this is just the account before the flood, uh, before God pronounced that the flood was going to happen in 120 years. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great men's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The adjectives are important there. Only and all. Yeah, God had regrets. He made re he regretted not making men, but he regretted the choices God was making. Verse 6 says, and I'm going to read out of the 1984 version of the NIV, and it's the same basic idea communicated in all but the, uh, the King James. It said, the Lord was grieved that he made men on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. That's what God regretted. He regretted that man made choices to rebel against him. He regretted that, that, that judgment was going to be necessary. And God's heart was filled with pain. Another translation, the Living Bible says that God's heart was broken. But it wasn't because he made a mistake, Carlos. This is just a, a way that we can explain an infinite God. I, I used this term yesterday. It's an anthropomorphism. It's, it's a way we can communicate an infinite um, uh, heart of God uh, to a very finite mind of mankind. 
It's not that God made a mistake. It's not God that's sorry he made man. He's sorry for the choices that man made. He's sorry that what he really wanted, fellowship with men, was going to be destroyed. Isaiah 28 says that judgment is a strange work for God, and in this particular case, um, announcing that the flood is going to come and destroy the earth and all who live on it, save Noah and his family, he regretted deeply, and his heart was broken deeply that he had to bring judgment on the world. So, yeah, God regrets. Usually it's the choices that we make, but not the choices that he makes. Does he make a mistake? God can't make a mistake. Hope that helps, Carlos. Thank you very much for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Carl. Uh, Carl says, I'm having a hard time understanding what's going on between God and Moses in Numbers 14. It looks an awful lot like Moses changes God's mind, but I know we can't change God's mind. He doesn't change his mind. So what's going on there? I've heard Moses compared to Jesus as our interceptor, but he means intercessor uh, or interceding on our behalf. But would that mean there's still some changing of mind going on? Carl, what you've experienced here is one of the great mysteries of Scripture. We know that God knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows the end from the beginning. But we also know very clearly that the Bible teaches that prayer changes the heart and the mind of God. I, I always think instantly of Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah was a good king, and when he came down with a disease that was going to kill him, he pleaded with God to to extend life. Well, what's the value of everything I've done? I don't have a son to pass this to. And so God gave him an extra 15 years of life. And in that 15 years of life, the worst king in Israel's history was born. Now, there's a good ending because this man... Manasseh gives his life to Jesus, or we would say gives his life to Jesus. He, he, he repented and, and returned to God. We'll see him in heaven. But the damage that he did, the, 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 the horrible stewardship of the people of Israel, the, the, the way he would have disappointed his father, but God heard Hezekiah's prayer. Now, obviously God knew that Hezekiah was going to pray that. He knew that God was going to, God did, that he was going to, to answer that prayer in the affirmative. So it didn't surprise God at all. Now, in the book of Numbers, especially not just in Numbers 14, but in other places, there are um, um, uh, an interesting exchange that's going on uh, because God is preparing Moses Remember, Jesus is going to be another prophet like Moses. Jesus is our great intercessor. God was preparing Moses, who was not divine. He was preparing Moses to do the same thing. You know, when I teach these passages, Carl, one of the things that I talk about is this constant bickering, it seems to us, going on between God and Moses. Moses, your people, and God says, they're not my people, they're your people, Moses. And and, and God says, I'm just going to leave them. At one point, he tells Moses, Moses, I'm so angry with these people that here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave them. Uh, you take, I'll send an angel with you and you and your people, just you and your people. Go and we'll start all over again. I'll make out of your name a great nation. And Moses, because God was preparing his heart, challenged the Lord. But for your name's sake, what will the enemies around us say? And God was preparing Moses to do the job that God wanted Moses to do. In this particular case, he's like a type of Christ. The Old Testament has a lot of pictures, and Moses is a type of Christ pointing to the Christ Jesus who will come. And God was simply preparing him in the same way he prepared his son. Jesus cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Moses was a picture or type, but to do the work of God, he needed to have the heart of God. And God put Moses in circumstances where God could change his heart, making him every day, again, I'll use New Testament terminology here, making him every day a little bit more like Jesus. So that's what's going on. It's not God changing, uh, or, or I'm sorry, Moses changing God's mind at all. 
It's the mind and the heart that God had all along, and he's going to implement that mind and heart and practicality uh, through the man that he called to lead Israel, and that would be uh, Moses. So um, no changing in the mind. This was always God's plan. But remember that God always needs a human partner. At least in this time and space dimension, in this dispensation, God needs a human partner. And Moses was the one that he chose, and Moses would then be the deliverer. And as I said, a great picture, a type of Christ. Thank you, Carl. I hope that helps answer your question. 340-9585 for your live calls. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, Pastor Ron, can I have your opinion of prenuptial agreements? Anonymous in a marriage, God makes two people one. A prenup automatically assumes that two people are going to remain two. Two are going to remain separate. I've actually had this question come up uh, occasionally um, during pre-marriage counseling. Uh, my answer is always the same. Uh, if you have chosen a man or if you have chosen a woman uh, that you can't trust with everything that you have, then this marriage has no business moving forward. Two never remain two in marriage. Two always become one. Now, the same principle applies not only in the, the, the division of financial or material assets, but children as well. Over the years, I've had a lot of women who are in their second or third marriages, and or at least they're preparing for their second or third marriage, and they have children from previous marriages. That's not the way it should be, but obviously that's the way things are in the church. Uh, and said, so, well, well, what about disciplining my children? I said, if God has called this man to be your husband, then they become his children, and he is the man God has chosen to rightly represent him to your kids. And if you can't trust him with your children, if you're not of one heart, and that heart is Jesus' heart, then you have no business marrying him. So prenups, child issues, all those things, they are dealt with by knowing that we're one flesh. Let's go to Michelle on line one from San Antonio. Michelle, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Rod. Can you hear me? Michelle, are you with us? Yes, I'm driving and it's raining, so can you hear me? I can hear you now, Michelle, thanks. Okay, um, so my question is pertaining to the different religions and faiths and the most adequate way to communicate the difference between those that are, have Christ and name Christ but not necessarily are Christian. For example, I know Catholics are not Christian, but then you have Baptists, Presbyterians, and so forth. And trying to articulate the difference has been challenging, and I just wondered if you could help me with that. I'm going to listen on my top five. Thank you, Michelle. Appreciate it very much. Um, Michelle, some Catholics are Christians. Um, what, what, what's required to become a Christian is believing in the person of Jesus Christ, not knowing about him but actually knowing him. Jesus died for a relationship. Now, by definition, Jesus said you must be born again. Catholic, the Catholic Church doesn't teach it. You must be born again. They believe um, in some unexplainable way that infant baptism deals with the problem of original sin, and that's the, the, the born-again element of our faith. And they're wrong about that. So, because they believe wrong doctrine doesn't disqualify them from being Christians. Um, far too few Catholics are Christians. They haven't been born again. They, they, they believe in a relationship uh, with the church rather than a relationship with Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Now, they believe in the right Father. They believe in the right Son. They believe in the right Holy Spirit. But the way to get to him is what the issue is. So the way to explain to people who name the name of Christ, and by the way, Michelle, we could apply the same thing to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they are cults that, that, that simply don't have the right Jesus or the real Jesus. So it's not the name Jesus. It's not what you know about Jesus. It's do you know him, and even to a greater degree, does he know you? So the way to communicate that to somebody is simply by asking them, well, let me stop everything here. I know you are a Catholic, but have you been born again? 
Paula and I, over the years, we've 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 encountered this so many times since we've been in San Antonio that we've just sort of cut to the chase right away because we want to engage people in a conversation because what we want them to know is what they instinctively know, that a religion will not get you to God. I've said on this program many times, Michelle, that religion is is our attempt to reach up to God, to justify ourselves before God. I'm going to go to Mass. I'm going to, I'm going to say the rosary, pray the rosary. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do good things. I'm going to go to church regularly and faithfully. And somehow we've been tricked into believing that that justifies us before God, when in reality, the only way we could ever be justified before God is for God to reach down to us, because we could never reach to Him. And so what I want to do when I'm talking to people that are Catholic is I want to determine, are they saved? Are they born again? What makes you think you're a Christian? Well, because I'm a Catholic, I was born a Catholic, I go to Mass, I do this, I do that. None of that saves. And that's when we have an opportunity to open uh, our Bibles and our hearts and share with them and pray for them. So that's the distinction. Are you born again? And if they don't see the need to be born again, the answer is no, they're not born again. If they're depending on their religious relationship to justify them before God, they're not born again. And then the way we deal with them, Michelle, is to simply tell them about Jesus and about what he came to do, about how the church you go to doesn't matter. What matters is your relationship with God. Now, I said at the beginning of this question that there was a lot of, there, there are Catholics who are Christian. Sadly, not as many as we would hope. But our job as born-again Christians is to try to identify whether or not they're His, use their own words, but just let them know that what you're hoping in, a religion, doesn't work. One other thing, Michelle, uh, I have always found that the the, the example in the New Testament that I can use the most effectively is that of Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus was a very religious Jew. Uh, He was the preeminent teacher in Israel, uh, a well-respected man. But you see, there was something in his heart. And he knew there was more. He knew who Jesus was. Now, we know he became a secret believer, didn't come sort of out of the spiritual closet until Jesus' death. But It was through this most religious of men that Jesus said, you must be born again. And usually when I find that people are asking questions, uh, I find that God's prepared their hearts. They know, like Nicodemus knew, there was more. They know that religion in and of itself isn't satisfying. So that's what I would do with Catholics. Again, with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, um, We have to understand that they don't have the right Jesus. Their Jesus isn't God, thus their Jesus cannot save. It's not the words that we use, it's the meaning that's poured into the words. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God who is God the Son, is the only source of salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, Peter said. The problem is too many of us, we just think it's the name. But it's not. We're not saved by a name. We're saved by a person. So I hope that helps, Michelle. Thank you. That's a great question. I've had a lot of questions this week about uh, religion and denomination, so it fit in very nicely. We've got three minutes. We're just inside three minutes left. Uh, Here's a question I can get. Victor says, Will anointing a house with oil remove all of the evil spirits? Victor, that's sort of superstitious silliness. So the answer is no. What you want to do, um, first of all, is you want to dedicate everything that you have to the Lord. And so you dedicate your house to Him. Lord, this is a house that you've been generous enough to provide for us. This house belongs to you. But what removes the evil spirits, Victor, is the presence of Christ in the house. And, and with born-again Christians, that's a given. 
So uh, we, we just hear too much of this silliness. I'm going to de- anoint the doorposts of my house. You know, if Jesus is with you, if it's your house, you're a born-again Christian, you dedicate that house to Jesus, then the reality is that evil spirits haven't got a chance. Evil spirits don't stay in inanimate objects. Evil spirits like to inhabit people. Now, that doesn't mean demons won't try to harass you and they won't try to mess with you. Because they will. It's sort of like Paula says, it's their job. But there's nothing about an oil that has any magical power. The oil is representative or symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, believe me, the evil spirits will go. Resist the devil, James says, and he will flee from you. So, Victor, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585, we've got, uh, we're coming up on the station break. We've got 30 minutes left in today's program. We'd love more of your live calls and questions. Please, please, please be careful while you're driving out there. Um, Toll free, you can call us at 877-630-KSLR. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We will be back. On the other side of the break, we will see you in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday program. Once again, I love you. Be careful. Drive safely. I was actually uh, on scene at a pretty bad accident this morning. I was at the gym and... um, um, it, it's just one of those things that when it's happening, all you pray is, Lord, oh, please let him be okay. Please let him be okay. And I mean, I was right there. So uh, I don't want any of that to happen to any of you. Here's a question from Dale. Dale says, I think the church should be doing more to help the poor. Why do we not do so? Well, Dale, I don't know what church you go to, but I don't know a church that, who, that doesn't do a lot for the poor. I'm talking about a Christian church doing a lot for the poor matters. This is good news to the poor. Now, here's one of the things that we have to understand. The very most we can give to the poor is Jesus. Remember when Peter encountered the beggar at the gate, beautiful, and the beggar was asking for money, expecting to get some, and Peter looked at him and said, Gold or silver have I none. What I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise and walk. And that beggar was so grateful that Peter had Jesus to give rather than just give him a few bucks. So first and foremost, we've got to understand that the poor need Jesus. That's our primary mission. That's our primary directive. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing other things. This is a question you probably ought to address to your pastor, Dale. Are we doing, what are we doing to help the poor? Now, obviously, we have limited resources. We're not the government, so the government uh, has a role. The church has a role. But usually, Dale, helping the poor starts with helping the poor inside our own churches. You know, in our church, and I'll just use Calvary Chapel as an example, at our church, Every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Friday, we have a whole bunch of single moms who are barely making it. Single moms and their kids are sort of like the widows and the orphans of the New Testament. We've got to be available to help them when they need it. Um, I can't fix the homeless problem. They have to make choices to follow Jesus. So maybe you ought not to be quite as judgmental as you are. I think every church, at least every church I know, spends quite a lot on the on the poor. Let me just give you again another example from our church. Dale, we have here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio a completely free school. We've got one more month in our 18th year. 
completely free, a quality Christian private education, open to believers and unbelievers alike. We have requirements if believers, uh, unbelievers rather, choose to have their kids here. They've got to bring their kids. Uh, they've got to come to church a couple times a month at least. But, but there's no money at all involved. Uh, it costs us a lot of money to do it. We have, Dale, uh, a family practice doctor's office just two doors, three doors down from us. Um, I can walk there, take the mail to them every day. But but a husband and wife doctor team, a pediatrician, a physician's assistant, we've got nurses on staff, we have a whole ministry geared to helping people. 90% of the people that come into our 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 clinic, Malta Medical is the name of it, 90% of them are not connected with our church. So we're doing as much as we possibly can. That doctor's office costs us a lot of money. We have a home that we put up women and their children if they're going through difficult times. So we do so much for the poor. We do way more for the poor than anything else. And we sacrifice to do so. Dale, I think you'd find that's the example that most churches give. If there are churches who aren't doing stuff for the poor, they'll answer to Jesus, Dale. They won't answer to you or to me. 340-9585. Let's go back to the phone lines and talk with Michelle on line one. Michelle has a follow-up question. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Pastor Ron. So I, I'm not driving anymore, <laughs> but okay, good. I think I didn't communicate the question right from what I was trying to say. Um, it, I understand on a personal witnessing level how to communicate to somebody and ask them if they're born again. I get that. But I have a hard time when I'm trying to explain why um, different denominations or faiths are distinguishable from, to Christianity compared to others based off of what you're explaining, the fact that they're not saying they're, that they don't require you to be born again and so forth. And the best example I could come up with was Catholic because they so closely identify with Christianity, call themselves Christian, but we know that they have other doctrinal beliefs. But then you have people like the Baptist that have different maybe methods of doing um, church or worship or whatever, but they identify with the tenets of faith. So I have a hard time communicating that to people when I'm explaining why some Christian, quote-unquote, religions really aren't Christian. That's what I'm trying yeah. to get. I, I, I understand. Thank you for clarifying that, and I'll, I'll take a different approach with it because of the clarification. Thank you, Michelle, very, very much. Um, some who pronounce themselves Christian, our faith has what we call, or what has historically been called, essentials of the historic Christian faith. Now, it's not just Catholics. It's, uh, by and large, the United Methodist Church, uh, a, a whole segment of the Lutheran Church, the ELCS, um, the Episcopal Church, uh, the Anglican Church. Uh, all of them founded in Christ. All of them started well. I mean, think about the United Methodist Church. John Wesley uh, was sort of the founder of what we now call the Methodist Church. They started well. They started believing in the essentials of the historic Christian faith. But what happens is they slowly over time have turned away from the essentials of the historic Christian faith. So when somebody's asking me that question, well, why are there so many different denominations? Again, that's a question we've had uh, earlier this week in the program. Um, the, the answer is because there are denominations that hold to the essentials of the historic Christian faith, and then there are denominations that do not, and that's what makes them. Um, Michelle, you may remember this past Sunday's message. Uh, I um, said very aggressively i said that that if you do not believe in the miraculous virgin birth of jesus christ that mary was a virgin that she was conceived uh, as the holy spirit came upon her that jesus's father was god the father then you're not a christian you can name the name of christ all you want but that's an essential his substitutionary death and atonement for our sins is another essential uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons making up one God. That's an essential of the, of the historic Christian faith. And there are others, but if you go away from those essentials, well, then basically you are teaching a Jesus who can't save. He, he's lost the, the, the ability to save because he is a Jesus that you've created in your own heart 
and in your own mind. Um, if we don't hold on to those essentials, we're lost. Now, I can talk to you about Baptist churches. Um, Baptist churches are very different from what we do here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, but they still hold to the essentials of the historic Christian faith. Even within some of those uh, other denominations that I mentioned, Michelle, Lutherans or, or Anglicans or Episcopal Church uh, people or Methodist Church people, there are some. Uh, churches who still hold on to the essentials of the historic Christian faith. But it all basically boils down to who is Jesus? Uh, do you believe in the Bible as the, un- as, the, as the inspired, inerrant word of God? If you don't, then you're going to drift away from those essentials. And that's what's happened to the churches. They've, they've decided, for example, that it's okay for a, uh, a man to marry a man, a woman to marry a woman. It's okay to ordain uh, as as pastors or preachers, uh, people who are living in violation of the word, and they simply explain it away by saying that that um, well, the Bible, you know, it's just a suggestion book or it's just a, a a book, but it wasn't written by God. And and they those people always get won over by the world around them by the culture. So that's what's happened in our church culture. People decided that what God said, He didn't really said. And it isn't long before you lose Jesus in the process. And uh, in my lifetime, now I've only been saved for 27 years, Michelle, but in my lifetime, I have seen entire denominations completely depart from the Word and seen those same denominations turn apostate. So what we believe matters. It's not just the name that we use, but what we believe matters, and it matters a whole lot. And that's the way I explain it to other people. And, well, how do you know your way is right? Well, we've got God's Word, and and then I always want to turn that into a personal conversation with them as well. I, I want them to find out for themselves. So that's why one group that professes Christ is orthodox and one group that professes Christ is not orthodox. Now, one final thought here, Michelle. We who are orthodox in our faith, we have to be really careful not to be too judgy of other people because there are Christians in every denomination. Uh, Jesus' seven letters to the churches in Revelation um, he, he indicates there's always a remnant in each of those churches. So we might say for sure that Philadelphia was, was a church that really professed and believed in Jesus Christ, and he had them. But we might say that the church at Laodicea or the church at Thyatira, well, they also named the name of Christ, but they didn't have the real Jesus. But even in those churches, there were always some who held on. So I hope that helps it's, it's a tough question to explain to an unbeliever because all they hear is the name of Jesus. It is not the name of Jesus which saves. It is the person of Jesus which saves. And in order to be saved, we have to have the right person. Jesus Christ of Nazareth who lived, who died, he was crucified, taking your place and mine on the cross, giving us, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, his perfection in exchange for our filth, that's the Jesus you have to have. It has to be the Jesus who was born of a virgin. That's the Jesus you have to have. If you don't have that Jesus, you're lost. So that's a long way of saying that it all depends on who really Jesus is. Thanks, Michelle. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Emily. Can you explain what a lukewarm Christian is? Uh, Emily, yeah, unfortunately I can. <laughs> I know a bunch. A lukewarm Christian, uh, the, the, the term comes from um, the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, Jesus said to them, uh, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. I'm about to spit you literally. It's to vomit you out of my mouth. Um, so that's where the term lukewarm gets um, gets uh, its, its genesis from. But the idea is that it's a, it's a Christian who has lost their passion for Jesus. Again, Jesus led her to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. Um, you're still going through the motions. You're still doing all the things. But I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. 
a lukewarm Christian is a Christian James calls double-minded, one foot in the world and one foot in church. A lukewarm Christian is a is a is a Christian, and there are really some lukewarm Christians, uh, but it's a Christian who cares more about the things of this world than about the things of God. Now, you might wonder, Emily, how can that possibly be? Well, every Christian ought to wonder how that can possibly be. You know, one of the things I say a lot here at Calvary Chapel to my church, uh, obviously, Paula, uh, we talk about her a lot. We, we talk about our life experience in the course of teaching through the Bible. And uh, I, I say to the church all the time, I love Paula with all my heart. I, I couldn't love anybody any more than I love Paula. And, and I think I've always believed it was impossible. Before I got saved, I always believed it was impossible to have a relationship with another human being um, that is as deep and as wonderful as my relationship is with her. Having said that, I then say, but I love Jesus infinitely more than I even love Paula. And I actually get criticized for that. People have actually come to Paula and said, oh, I'm so sorry he said that publicly. Well, Paula needs me to love Jesus more than I love her. Because loving Jesus is the only way I can love her the way he wants her to be loved. So a lukewarm Christian is just somebody who's not that committed, somebody who's uh, hot and cold in their walk with the Lord. Um... Unfortunately, Emily, it describes a whole lot of the professing Christian church, and it just should not be. Jesus should be our all in all, our everything. So I hope that answers your question, Emily. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Keith. He says, who are the three men who showed up in Genesis 18 to talk with Abraham? Keith, the three men uh, were Jesus... The first one, he's the one that carried the conversation. Uh, he's the one that Abraham negotiated with. Uh, Jesus in pre-incarnate appearance as the angel of the Lord. Not an angel, but the angel of the Lord. The other two men are identified as uh, destroying angels. Now, to talk to Abraham, to, to, to go into Sodom and Gomorrah, they had to appear as men. Angels often in Scripture appear as men. Uh, in this particular case... There were two angels, uh, destroying angels, and the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, in pre-incarnate form. Now, why that matters so much is that only God is able to judge, rightfully, and Jesus was coming in to render judgment on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham did everything he could to, to stop the judgment, negotiating all the way down. If you can just find a few righteous people, then I will spare them, Abraham. But this was Jesus. And obviously he is the one, the destroyer, the author of judgment. And he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's who they were. It's a great story. Keith, hope that helps. Edward wants to know from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, does God really test us to see what is in our hearts? Doesn't he know? Edward, uh, this is one of the more important passages um, that, that a New Testament pastor can, can teach on uh, because we know that God tests us to see what's in our heart, but he knows what's in our heart. But he sends the tests our way so that we'll know what's in our heart. It's a very important distinction to make. I know that God knows everything about me. I, I would like to think, well, I'm going to pass the test, Lord. But he knows, and he continues to test us to prove our hearts. Perhaps the definitive test in all of the Old Testament. Edward is Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Evidently, Abraham had become so enthralled with his son, a son that he never dreamed he'd be able to have, but, but a son that God promised, that in terms of priority, Isaac began to take priority in Abraham's heart, even over God, the giver of the gift. So God told him to do something. You've got to make a choice. I'm going to paraphrase. You've got to make a choice. Let's find out if you love him more or me more. And Abraham spent three days making that choice, wrestling with, why would God have me do this? I can't believe. But he won the, the wrestling match 
because he eventually trusted in God. Hebrews 11 tells us that he eventually concluded at some point during that three-day journey that, God, you've made a lot of promises to me, and all of those promises go through Isaac. So if you're going to kill him, you've got to raise him from the dead. And figuratively, Hebrews says, Isaac was raised from the dead. God never intended for Abraham to kill his son, but God needed Abraham to know who he loved more. And when Abraham made that choice, that's exactly when God said, don't touch the lad. And that's when the ram appeared in the thicket. I imagine it's when Isaac went, whew! <laughs> but, um, yeah, he tests us all the time. Let me bring this so closer to home in the New Testament construct, Edward. You know, there are times that we go through trials and we go through tests. Well, God wants to know if we're going to choose him or choose what we're being tempted by. Every time we willfully sin, we fail the test. And so what God is going to do is to keep testing you because he wants you to know what's in your heart. You know, too many of us as Christians, we think, well, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, but God, I know you want me to be happy, you know. That's the time when testing is going to come. And we have to know what's in our hearts. You see, Edward, if we're not honest with God, well, then we can never grow in this process of sanctification. It's a process of being more like Jesus every day. If we're not honest, we can never, like David said, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Renew within me a right spirit. So, yeah, he tests us, not because he doesn't know what's in our heart, but because we don't know or we are in denial. And he wants it out in the open. And the reason he wants it out in the open, Edward, is because he wants us, all of us, to be in a place where we can be used to bring him glory. Here is a question from Randy. We've got about six minutes left, so if you have a question to call in, call in quickly. Randy says, Pastor Ron, can you explain what Jesus meant in Matthew 7 when he said, you will know them by their fruit? Uh, Randy, I can. Um, um, the context there is very important. Um, he's talking about false teachers, false prophets. Uh, I'm sure he's sort of looking right in the direction of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who are making false claims about him. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, if you want to know who's genuine and who's not, Michelle, this would be a good um, response for the question you asked as well. It's if you want to know who's real and who's not, look at the fruit of their lives. What he's saying to his Jewish audience are, are the Pharisees. Are they loving? Are they kind? Are they gentle? Or are they, un, in fact, dominating? Are they oppressing you? Are they, are they trying to create burdens? Are, are they dealing with you fairly? And the temple sacrifices. You see, those are the things that we have to look at fruit is the way we live our lives. Now, Randy, for you and for me, that fruit is explained to us in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness also. So if you want to know who's a Christian, who's not a Christian, look at the fruit doesn't mean they're not nice people who are unbelievers. There are. But every Christian ought to be able to be identified as belonging to Jesus simply by the way they conduct their lives. You know, when I get angry or when I get frustrated or get impatient, I don't want anybody to see that because that would embarrass me before God. I don't want to take the even the possibility of misrepresenting Jesus. So that's when I have to exercise self-control. That's when I have to exercise patience and kindness. And when you see a Christian sort of stifling his or her flesh in order to rightly represent God, that's good fruit. So that's the way we determine who is and who isn't the Lord. We can judge their fruit. But that's what Jesus meant as in opposition to the false prophets 
You want to see who's really teaching the truth? Jesus said, look at the fruit from their lives. So, Randy, that's what's meant. We are, where are we here? I got time. Okay, I got time. Two minutes. Got a question from Roger. He says, Jehovah's Witnesses say that John 1 says the word was a God, not that the word was God. How do you explain that? Uh, Roger, I can explain it really, really simply. They're not telling you the truth. You know, the Watchtower, um, going all the way back to Charles Taze Russell, um, the, the Watchtower has always said that, well, to interpret the Word of God, you've got to go through us. You've got to come through our interpretation. It's the only way you can understand it because the interpretation was giving, given to, to C.T. Russell. Um, and, and, and they've done so many gymnastics um, with the words. And, and for years, their, their standard response was, well, you know, our scholar, the, the preeminent Greek scholar, translating the passage of Scripture, says that there should be the word A in there, the article A. So it's not that Jesus was God. Of course, they don't believe that Jesus was God. So what they did is they lied to justify what they believe. So it says the word was a God, but that's not what the Greek manuscripts say. There is, it, there's no Greek scholar, uh, even secular scholars, who would look at that passage and say that it says, and Jesus, the word was a God. No, he was God in the capital G sense. So, Roger, the explanation is simply that they are false teachers. They're proclaiming another Jesus who isn't really Jesus at all. Paul says if somebody does that, they're cursed, they're cut off from God. So that's why we pray for them, because they are truly cut off from God. Thank you for the calls and questions today. I appreciate it very, very much. Tonight, 2 Samuel chapter 10 here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. You can watch it at 7 o'clock at calvarysa.com on the live stream. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in sooner with me on the date day edition of the program. Ladies, we'd love to have your calls and questions for Paula. May the Lord bless you. Tell somebody Jesus loves them. I'll see you tomorrow at 4. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.